how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity together. And Father, how good it is when we sit together under our Father's voice. Father, we we want to hear you speak now. We ask that you would encourage us where we need encouraging, but that you'd also challenge us where we need challenging. Father, give us soft hearts, and with it being a hot day, give us attentive minds. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I really love about working and living around here is the number of celebrities you're always bumping into. Two years ago, I was reading the Bible one-to-one just down the road in Euphoria, and uh, we were just praying um, with the book of Micah open in front of us, and and in walks Damien Lewis from Homeland, from Banner Brothers, from Millions, and he comes and sits down right there next to us. Now, you might not know, but Damien Lewis's wife is also in the acting game. Her name is Helen McCrory. And uh, she's done things like, I think she's in the Harry Potter films, I think she's um, in Skyfall, she's the one who sort of interrogates Bond uh, at that meeting. And uh, it, she recently gave an interview to a women's magazine, and uh, she, she describes how she was awoken one morning recently with a, with a very early morning phone call. It was an agent on the phone, and he sounded very, very agitated. Quick, he said, quick, you need to call the cabinet office right away. Why? She asked. Well... You need to let them know whether you're going to accept your OBE. Today's the last day to let them know. If you don't know, an OBE is a special honour from the Queen. It's the Order of the British Empire. And Helen had received one for her contribution to the arts. But do you know what? She hadn't even opened the letter. Sure enough, she saw the letter drop through the letterbox, plop, onto the mat. But she saw the official-looking stamp. And she thought it was a parking ticket. So it just left unopened. She confused the good news with bad news. And so left it well alone. And do you know what? Countless people make the same mistake with Jesus. They mistake the good news for bad news. We saw that in our news this week, didn't we? Tim Farron made this point in his resignation speech as Lib Dem leader. He says, our society is deeply suspicious of anyone who takes Jesus' teaching seriously. So here's our question. Why do people mistake the good news for bad news? Well, if you remember, we are returning to the book of Luke today. Uh, Jesus has been journeying towards Jerusalem. And on the way, the crowds have been seeing visibly the good news Jesus has come to restore outcasts and expendables. Jesus has come to welcome and embrace sinners. He's come to bring peace to a world which has been torn apart by sin. Jesus is the king. His kingdom is good news. But the surprise in our passage today, now that he hits the city is that many people think Jesus' kingdom is bad news. Why is that? Well, I've got three reasons. You'll see them on your handout if you're taking notes, if you're paying attention that way. Here's the first reason. It's because Jesus is a threat to our selfishness. Look down with me in your Bibles at verse 45. If you close your Bibles, please open them up again. Page 1054. Page 1054 in your Bibles. Verse 45. Luke writes this. 
When he entered the temple area, the temple courts, and began driving out those who were selling, it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. It's strange, isn't it? The other gospel accounts make so much more of this scene. They describe how he overturned tables, how he scattered coins everywhere, how he drives out all the animals. Luke doesn't go into all that detail. Luke's emphasis isn't so much on what Jesus does here, so much as why he's doing it. As we heard earlier from our our reading in Mike in uh, in Jeremiah, one of the, the purposes of the temple was to be an inclusive place of prayer for everybody. You know, it was even designed with these um, special courts around the outside so that Gentiles, that are outsiders like us, could come and meet God. It, it didn't matter who you were. The idea was you can meet God in this place. But notice in verse 45, the temple area, the temple courts, were now being used for commercial activity. It seems as if the religious leaders were perfectly happy with this change in purpose, Possibly because they got a little bit of a cut of the deal. Outside Bristol Zoo, there's a parking lot for 150 cars and about five coaches. For around about 25 years, there was a a parking attendant who used to work there every single day, a very pleasant man, who would go around with a little ticket machine uh, charging cars and and, and coaches for parking in that area. But one day, this this lovely little chap just, just didn't turn up. And uh, the, the, the zoo got slightly worried, so they called up the council and said, can, can you send a, across another parking attendant for us, please? Our, our man hasn't come. And the council said, no, 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 the, the parking is, is your responsibility. It's, it's your zoo. The zoo went, no, it's your responsibility. We thought you were hiring him. We thought you were hiring him. Turns out that somewhere, probably in the Costa del Sol, is a, a man who for 25 years had stolen £400 a day earning £3.6 million. Well, in the same way, a casual observer looking at the temple would have thought everything was fine. It's just business as normal. But Jesus sees what no one else does. This is daylight robbery. The religious leaders, by allowing these courts to be used for commerce, they'd pushed the Gentiles out so they had nowhere to pray. In effect, they were robbing God of his glory. And so Jesus, being a a king of justice, always fighting for the underdog, what does Jesus do? He pushes the religious leaders out. Look at verse 47. Every day, he, Jesus, was teaching at the temple But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. I love the irony here, don't you? Just as the religious leaders displaced the Gentiles from praying, we'll say now Jesus displaces the teachers from teaching. And it makes them furious. Now, you would have thought, wouldn't you? You would have thought Israel's religious leaders, they'd be the first people to recognize their king. They, they've got the scriptures. They'd, they'd be the first, person, first people to bow before him, you would have thought. But as they see Jesus' kingdom advancing, they're concerned to see their own personal kingdom diminishing. And they find this incredibly, incredibly threatening. 
especially to their financial arrangements. I think we frequently see this sort of thing when we uh, run our Christianity Explored courses. To begin with, people are always really uh, full of enthusiasm. Salvation, uh, forgiveness, eternal life, brilliant. What's not to like? But once people see that Jesus isn't just a saviour, he's our Lord, he's our King, often their interest starts to wane. Perhaps they'd prefer a variant of Christianity which which is, uh, well, is, is less centered around Jesus and more around them. A variant of Christianity which doesn't have any real impact on their time or their money or their priorities. I've seen this again and again and again as, as people get to grips with Jesus' teaching, so often the good news is dismissed as bad news because they're threatened by Jesus' kingdom. But you know what? It's also very common in churches uh, for us to slip into this kind of thinking like these religious leaders. Very easy, isn't it? For us to put our comfort and our self-interest before what is good for the gospel going out. It'd be all too easy to make church a place which is just somewhere to meet our needs, to be comfortable for us rather than seeking to reach the people outside and adapting what we can for them. I don't think that is us here at St. John's, but we need to pray that never happens, that that we uh, never become more concerned with maintaining our traditions than actually what is best for the good news going out. And to help us do that, I think we need to do what the crowds do in verse 48. Did you see that? Notice they hang on Jesus' words. We're going to endeavour to keep the Bible smack bang at the centre of all we do here on Sundays and all we do in our small groups. But can I encourage you, keep the Bible, keep Jesus' words smack bang in the centre of your life too. I encourage you, begin each day reading the Bible. We've got Bible reading notes at the back there, take them. Why not, when you're meeting up with a friend at church over coffee, open the Bible up, encourage one another with Jesus' words. Because if if we recognise ourselves, we've got this selfish inward-looking inclination. Well, that needs to be challenged by Jesus' words. So let's keep the Bible center in all we do. Let's keep Jesus' kingdom displacing our kingdom. Here's the second reason why Jesus, uh, people mistake Jesus' good news for bad news. And you'll see there on your sheets, Jesus is also a threat to our authority. Follow with me in verse 1. In your Bibles, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said. Who gave you this authority? Now clearly, these religious leaders, they're a little bit knocked off, aren't they? What all Jesus has done in the temple driving them out, teaching in his place. They want to know, who, who, who allowed you to do such things? Who gave you this authority? Tell us. Clearly, clearly in their eyes, Jesus is just some jumped-up pretender. But Jesus' question in verse 3 exposes them to be the pretenders. 
He asked them a very penetrating question. He asked them, what do you you make of John the Baptist's ministry? What do you make of his ministry? Was uh, John the Baptist's ministry, was that of human origin? And so was his authority just fake? Did he have no authority whatsoever? Or was his authority from God? Did he have all the authority from God? Well, now, of course, they know what the right answer is, don't they? Friends, over here. They know what the right answer is, don't they? But they just can't bring themselves to say it. It was an inconvenient truth. Because if they say that John's baptism was real, then people ask, well, why why didn't you follow what John said about Jesus? But if they say John's ministry was fake, then they'll be stoned by the people. Very good question. So the answer, verse 7. We don't know where he comes from. Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. You see, their refusal to answer shows they care more about keeping their, their positions of authority than recognizing the king who has authority over all of us. You see, Jesus isn't the pretender. They are. The story is told of when Camilla Parker Bowles, this was ages ago, before she became a princess regent, uh, she, she once uh, popped into her local Sainsbury's in Chippenham. And uh, she was going around the car park, her daughters were in the car, but she, uh, she couldn't see a parking space anywhere. There was only one space left, and it was right outside the shop, with a very clearly demarcated sign saying, reserved for the mayor of Chippenham. Well, being Camilla, she just parked there anyway, went in and did her shopping. But on the way out, she was stopped by a man who said, well, what are you doing parking in this space? She said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. You see, I, I, I'm the mayor's wife. And the man said, oh, how lovely to meet you. I'm the mayor. <laughs> it's stupid, isn't it? But we often act like this. Pretending to have an authority which isn't ours. Living as though we are king over our lives. But if Jesus is the king, then that means we're not. So we can respond to Jesus' authority in one of two ways. One option is to do what these religious leaders do and to suppress an inconvenient truth. Remember I've told you before, I think, about a Christianity Explored course I took my friends along to when I was in my third year at uni. My friends were Amy, Tim and Romaine. None of them were Christians, but week by week over this course... They became absolutely persuaded from the evidence that Jesus is God. Yet not one of them became Christians. Tim said to me, I know Jesus is God, that much is obvious, but I want to keep on getting drunk with my mates. Amy said, I know it's true, but never speak to me about this again. She wanted to carry on sleeping with her boyfriend. Remain. She was one of these angry atheist types. She became a very much, uh, she became a theist. But she said, oh, I won't follow Jesus because I'm terrified, terrified of what my friends will think of me. So you like these religious leaders. So often people know that Jesus is the king. But they're too proud to admit it. They don't want to lose face. And so what do they do? They shrug their shoulders and they walk away from their king. You know, we could do that. We could carry on resisting his authority over us. 
you know, perceiving him, his, uh, his authority as a threat to our time, uh, to our ambitions, to our sex lives, whatever. We could do that. But doesn't it make more sense to simply embrace the truth? Because in all honesty, ask yourself this. We, we do a terrible job of ruling ourselves, don't we? A terrible job. You see, when I try and rule myself, when I try and put my happiness first... Ironically, it always makes me more miserable. When, uh, when I try and look after my own fulfillment, when I try and uh, pursue, uh, pursue my own ambitions, I always feel, like, feel more empty at the end of it. I've discovered that life is far more sweet, far more joyful, far more fulfilling when I take off my little crown and I hand it back to my king. Yes, Jesus is a threat, to your selfishness. Yes, Jesus is a threat to your authority. But friends, that is not bad news. That is good news. That is good news indeed. But here's a final reason why people mistake the good news for bad news. You'll see it there. Jesus is a threat to our control. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, Jesus' listeners, they would have been really familiar with the beginning of this story. In Isaiah chapter 5, God's people Israel, they're, they're compared to a beautiful vineyard. If you like, God formed them, Uh, God planted them, God did everything for them. But in Jesus' version of the story, the owner of the vineyard, he he rents it out to some farmers, some tenants. Now, I don't need to tell you this, it's quite obvious, isn't it? But when when you uh, rent out a property, it still belongs to the owner, doesn't it? And as tenants, the job is to simply look, it up, look after the place and, and to pay your rent. It's quite a simple transaction, really, isn't it? Well, in the same way, Israel's leaders, they were tasked with looking after God's people and tasked with giving God the glory. But look what happens. 10b, verse 10, halfway through. But the tenants beat the servant and sent him away and he hampered. The owner sent still another servant, but that one they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir. Let's kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is a devastating critique of the very leaders Jesus has been engaging with over the course of this chapter. You see, by denying God's glory in the temple courts, by denying the authority of God's servants, prophets like John the Baptist, by plotting to kill God's son, we see that their real motive is to take control of the vineyard of God's people. Now this album here is my 
is one, it's definitely in my top five. This is uh, Muse Origin of Symmetry. It's released all the way back in 2001, 16 years ago, if you can believe it. I can't. And as the, the title of the album suggests, Origin of Symmetry, it's, it's, the album, if you like, is a grand search for the origin of beauty, the origin of order in our universe. And uh, the, uh, the thing is, they're, they're atheists, and, and they can't quite bring themselves to believe there's a creator behind everything. And so this sort of theme, it culminates with the final track of the album. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a highly religious song in many respects. There's this blasting organ, church organ, going throughout the whole thing. Heavy drums. But they call out God for what he is. They say, you're just a figment of our imagination. They shout out to him, take off your disguise. Because underneath, I know it's me. Underneath, I know you're me. What's interesting is that they title that track Megalomania. Because they recognize that if there isn't a creator, if there isn't a God, then I'm God. Megalomania. See, this is the heart of sin. It's not just the, the bad things we do. It's the deep-seated attitude which says to the creator who lovingly formed us and gave us everything we have I want control I want to live my life my way without you but you know to take control you're going to have to kill the one who's in control and given how good and patient our God has been with us our attitude to Jesus isn't just rude It's treasonous. So how should a just and holy God respond? How would you respond if someone killed your son? Look at verse 15, halfway through. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. We see here something of God's severity in judgment. He will punish all those who reject his son. But we also see here something of his plan. See, this rejection of Christ by Israel's leaders, it opens the door wide for Gentile Christians like us to be fully included in God's plan, into God's people. And funnily enough, that prospect horrifies Jesus' listeners. Verse 16b, when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Oh, Gentiles, nations coming in, that would be awful. Jesus looked at them, verse 17, and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Jesus moves on seamlessly, doesn't he, from a story about a son being rejected by the tenants to a psalm about a cornerstone being rejected by the builders. A cornerstone, if you don't know, is, is, a, is the very most important part of the building. It forms the, the foundation of, of the building structure. And if you like, Jesus is the foundation of God's kingdom. A kingdom that, that would span the world. But these foolish builders, these religious leaders, they think they can do without this stone. 
because they're more concerned with building and controlling their own little kingdom. And yet Israel's leaders, they foolishly spurned the one stone they need the most. Just as those treasonous tenants were killed by the owner, so these builders would be broken and crushed by the very stone they'd rejected. You see, this is the question for us, friends. What's the foundation of our life? What, what is it that undergirds and underpins what you're living for? Is it, is it your ambition to build your own kingdom, to make a name for yourself? Or is it Jesus' kingdom? Apparently, back when the Old West was being settled, pioneers flocked up from all over America to, to states like California and, and Oregon. And on one particular spot of the, uh, of the eastern slopes of the Rockies, there was this large dirt-covered rock protruding right out of the middle of the road. Uh, wagon wheels were often broken on it as they rode over it, and people would trip over it on their journey uh, to these places. So finally, someone had the sense to dig up this stone and, and throw it into the stream nearby. The stream was, was slightly too wide to get across, so for, for decades, this little stone, this, this big rock, was used as a stepping stone uh, to get across the stream. And it was decades it was used like that, until another few decades later, some chap wanted to build a, a little house next to the stream, so he pulled this rock out and used it as a doorstep to stand on. Another gen- few generations later, and that settler's grandson um, had enough money to go to university. He was going to study geology over in the east, and one day he went to visit his, his grandpa, living in this little settlement next to this stream. And he looked at this rock, and he started examining it. And he discovered that this rock, covered in dirt, was in fact the largest gold nugget ever to have been discovered in that particular region of the Rockies. It had been there for generations. And yet no one saw how precious it was. I wonder, do you see Jesus for who he is? To some, he's just a a stumbling stone to our own personal kingdom. We have to get rid of him. To others, he's just a stepping stone. He's, He's a rescuer, but he's not our Lord. Still others, he's nothing. Just a, a big rock, perhaps, in our cultural history. What is Jesus to you? You see, if we see him rightly, he is the most precious king. A king who welcomes all into his presence, Gentiles included. Whoever you are here today, you're included. He wants you in his place. And do you know what? Our world will often mock and malign this cornerstone. Our world will often spit at our king And we will feel foolish for standing with him. But one day, this stone will be exalted. He will be seen by all to be the cornerstone of all time and space. And on that day, you will praise this king. So who are you building on? Who are you building your foundation on? Jesus or something else? Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for the good news 
that Jesus is the king we need. He is the foundation, the only foundation upon which we can build our lives and build your church. Father, as individuals and as St. John's, help us to build on no other foundation stone. Father, help us to recognize where we're resisting his rule over us and help us to build on him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to conclude the, the formal part of our service.